0: If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word with me to Exodus chapter 7. If you look there in your bulletin, it's printed that we are covering chapter 7 through 10 today. We are at that point in the book of Exodus where we will start tackling large portions of it at one time. I won't read all four chapters right now, but please keep it out, keep it ready. We will uh, go through uh, big parts of it together today. But just for our reading this morning, I will read chapter seven, verses one through 13. So let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Exodus chapter seven, beginning Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. The magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us over the ages that we might have it this day in our own language, a language that we understand. So we've had it read this morning and there's yet even more of it here before us. And we pray now, oh God, that you would give us more than just physical hearing and understanding, that You would open our eyes so we could behold wondrous things that you, by your Holy Spirit, would work doing what you promised to do, to teach us and train us and correct us, rebuke us. Oh, God, convict us, help us, encourage us, strengthen us, lead us, make us more like Jesus. Use the preaching of the word in our hearts. God, I pray for your people. I pray that they would know of your great mercy. I pray that you would soften hard hearts. And I pray that you would cause softened hearts to rejoice all the more. And God, I pray that you would help me. Lord, would you protect me from error? May the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So which weighs more? A feather or a human heart? I didn't think you'd ask that today, right? What weighs more, a feather or a human heart? To us, it's kind of a weird question, isn't it? It's a trivial question with an obvious answer, right? Seems obvious. But to the Egyptian living in what was known as the New Kingdom period, that is the period when these exodus events occurred, this question, that very question I asked, which weighs more, a feather or a human heart? That question, actually, in fact, the answer to that question meant the difference between eternal life And death. You see, the Egyptians in the New Kingdom believed that when someone died, they went to face a judgment hall of gods in the underworld. There, the individual's heart, which was believed to be the very essence of a person, their heart was to be weighed. On the scales of truth, there were these scales called the scales of truth, and they were weighed there by the mortuary god, Anubis. On one side of this scale sat a feather, and it was called the feather of truth and righteousness. On the other side would be placed the heart of the deceased. If the heart was heavier than the feather... It was bad. It was bad. Bad news. It was because the heart was weighted down with misdeeds. So the person was then deemed unjust. In the presence of the hall of gods, the person was duly condemned. And then standing in the corner was the frightening goddess Ammit, who would devour you whole. You can see pictures of this in ancient Egyptian pictures. Do you understand what's happening here? So for these Egyptians, life is all about works. Good works means you have a good and light heart. Good works means that you can live forever in some happy afterlife. Good works saves you. That background is really important (laughs) Really, really important as we come to Exodus chapter 7 through 10 this morning. We didn't read it all, it would have taken the rest of our morning. But 14 times in just these four chapters, we read about Pharaoh's heart and his heart being hard. Let's look at those verses really quick. Start in chapter 7, verse 3 but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Turn over to verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord has said. Very next verse, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. 7.22. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Eight, chapter eight, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Chapter eight, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Chapter nine, verse seven but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Verse 12 of chapter nine, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Also in chapter nine, verses 34 and 35. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Keep going. Chapter 10, verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Last two, two more. Chapter 10, verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. And then lastly verse 27 but the lord hardened pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go do you get it his heart is hard now for those of you interested in this and i think it's helpful we get all of our answers from this but i do want to point it out there's three different words in the original language the hebrew used to denote this when it says hardness of heart. There's kasah, which means to be difficult. It emphasizes stubbornness. So ladies, you can look at your husband and say you're being kasah, right? You're being stubborn. It's used only once here, okay? There's also hazak, which means to be strong, right? It emphasizes an inside determination. You could say really stubborn. It's used seven times. And then there's kavad, or kavod, kavad, which means kaved, to be heavy. She's reflect intensity, heaviness. She's six times. So think about what Todd preached last week, talking about chapters four and five, what happened to the people of Israel. The burden was made heavy. Kaved was made heavy upon them. So now look what's happening to the heart of Pharaoh. His heart grows heavier His heart is being more increasingly burdened. It's being intensely hardened. It's growing more and more weighted down with what? Sin, sinful pride, sinful stubbornness. He's not gonna let them go. And all of this is a fitting commentary on the just condemnation that sin deserves not the kind of false justice that comes at the hands of false Egyptian gods at their so-called scales of truth. But what's really in focus here that we need to keep in focus is the terrible wrath and justice that comes from a holy God that Pharaoh obstinately refuses to acknowledge. So I want to help us navigate these chapters. All we have time to do is take a 30,000-foot a flight above them, 7 through 10. I often wonder what it would be like to preach 10 sermons, one on each plague. I wasn't going to try this time. But I want to look at this text. Just look at this whole passage. We'll do it in three points. And You can tell I was on vacation last week. I didn't have much ingenuity here, okay? So the first one we'll call the paradigm. The paradigm. Second, the plagues. And here's where I get really, really clever. The third is called the point. So point three is the point, okay? All right, the point. The week got harder, okay, as I was away. So the point. The paradigm, the plagues, the point. Let's begin with chapter seven, verses one through 13, which I read earlier, where I believe God reveals to us the the paradigm for what follows in the whole narrative of the nine plagues, the first nine plagues. And we're gonna save the 10th plague for next week, the Passover, we're gonna talk about that next week. Uh, you'll remember that when Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh back in chapter five, they came in the name of the Lord, and in the name of Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And do you remember what Pharaoh's response was? Do you remember? Look back, look again. Go to chapter five, verse two. Remember, they said, thus says the Lord, which is very common. You walk in, you represent someone, you represent some deity. Thus says Yahweh. How does he respond? Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who is this guy? I don't know who he is. Who is that? Now look again at chapter 7, verse 5 the Egyptians shall know that I am he, I am the Lord. They shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You see, God will make sure that Pharaoh knows. God will make sure that all of Egypt knows who he is. In fact. This is also emphasized throughout chapters 7 through 10. It's here. It's in 7, 17. Look there. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22. At the very end, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14. At the very end, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 14. Actually, I just read that one. Verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 29 of chapter 9. So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And then chapter 10, verse 2. That you may know that I am the Lord. Remember, Pharaoh believes that he's the very embodiment of a God. The people of Egypt revere him. As a god, But the true God of the universe will have no other gods before him. So in calling Moses and Aaron to once again, and again, and again, and again, right? Because they're going to keep doing this. Go before Pharaoh in his name, his covenant name. God is drawing battle lines in the sand. In fact, he's drawing a battle line in the desert sand they're reminded as Dr. John Currid so rightly points out that, and I quote, he says, this was a matter of theology. It was a question of who the one true God was, of who was sovereign over the operation of the universe, and of whose will would come to pass in heaven and on earth. Dr. Currid concludes Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, engages Pharaoh, a God of Egypt, in a contest of power and will. So that's part of the paradigm. The paradigm is Yahweh versus Pharaoh throughout all the plagues. Yahweh versus Pharaoh. But notice right from the beginning, the battle's uncontested. In verse three, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land, he won't listen to you. Even so, look what he says in verse four. I will bring you out. It's gonna look like he's winning, right? But I'll bring you out. Sound familiar? Remember when we went through Revelation there for a couple of years? I will deliver my people. I will rescue my people. You belong to me. So now Moses knows the full paradigm ahead of time. You'll go, Pharaoh won't listen because God will harden his heart, but God will keep doing these things until finally his will is broken because God is the true God. He will be victorious over the false gods and he'll let his people go. And then we get an illustration. We get an illustration. It's illustrated for us in verses 10 through 13 when Moses and Aaron once again go before Pharaoh. Notice, as we read, that the magicians of Egypt are able to make their staffs become snakes just as Aaron did. Now, we can argue all day if this is some sleight of hand trick or some force of evil at work. That's not what's important here. What's really important is not how they made this happen, what's really important is the last half of verse 12. What happens? It's almost presented to us as like some matter of fact thing, right? Like it just moves on. They did it too and there's no like Moses and Aaron were like, whoa, Uh uh-uh. What happens? Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. (laughs) Could you imagine the scene? Like they do this thing, throw the staff down, turns into a serpent and then the magician's like, oh yeah, hold my drink. And they throw theirs on the ground, the same thing, and then his, and then he's like, hold our drinks. And then, blah, they gobble them up. I mean, that's really amazing. But, you know, in the ancient Near East, there were often encounters like this. And it was always this, this kind of, like, battle between who's got the best magic, right? Who can do the biggest sleight of hand trick? And whoever had the best magic would be considered the victor. The language of swallowing up is very key. Swallowing up means you absolutely decimate the power of the other one. It's gone. And that's what happens. From the very beginning, Moses and Aaron get to see that the power of the covenant God, Yahweh, swallows up any counterfeit power that Pharaoh claims to have. Yahweh is demonstrating that his power is truly supreme, there's no contest. And true to the paradigm, Pharaoh's response is predictable. Look at verse 13, his heart is hardened, he's not gonna listen, and look at the last five words. Just as God said. Don't miss that, just as God said. So that's the repeated paradigm of the first nine plagues. There's subtle variations along the way as you go through them. There's Pharaoh's false confessions of sin. (laughs) And his false promises to let the people go. But the paradigm remains. He doesn't. His confessions aren't true. Yahweh's triumphant over Pharaoh and all the false gods of Egypt. Pharaoh's heart is hardened and Yahweh's name and power are made known. And all this happens just as God said it would happen. And so that brings us to the first nine plagues themselves. And they're recorded for us in chapters 7 through 10. And to the second point that we have this morning the plagues. And so to help us very briefly wrap our minds around the events that are unfolding here, I'm just going to briefly answer two questions. First, what are these plagues? What in the world's happening here? Well, these plagues fundamentally are what we call signs and wonders, right? They're even referred to this in the text. They're signs and wonders, Now, we live in a culture, particularly now, that tries and dismisses the accounts of these plagues as mere fiction. Oh, that didn't really happen. We don't do that. We don't do that here, okay? I don't do that. These happened. Every word of God's word is truth. God is a God of miracles. Do you get to decide which miracles are miracles or not? If you dismiss these, how can you come to me and say, well, yeah, Jesus really was born of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, Jesus really did rise again from the grave. You can't cherry pick which miracles you want to believe and not believe. God's word is God's word. All of God's word is true. So first and foremost, these are signs and wonders performed by God, okay, that really happened. The same God who created the world and everything in it is able to work in and through and around his creation in supernatural ways to accomplish his purposes. So yes, God did afflict upon Egypt, the plagues that are recorded here. He turned water into blood. There's frogs, gnats, flies, livestock die. There's boils, sores, hail, locusts, and darkness, Each one is a miracle. It's a miraculous sign and wonder given to authenticate the message and the ministry of Moses and Aaron. These plagues are brought on and even subdued by the words and actions of these men flow not from some power inherent in them, but they flow ultimately from God. These plagues are God's miraculous signs and wonders. Okay, so what are they? miraculous signs and wonders that really happened. Second, we need to answer this question. What's the purpose of them? What are the purpose? Well, as God's signs and wonders that are miracles, they point to God himself and to his will. As we've already been reminded this morning, God is waging war against the false gods of Egypt. Pastor and commentator James Boyce, I think has very helpfully noted that these plagues fall upon all the areas of life that were supposed to have been protected by Egypt's many gods. In fact, he says there were about 80 major deities in Egypt, and they're all clustered about three great natural forces of Egyptian life. There's the Nile River, right? There's the land, and then the sky. So he breaks it down and says, if you look, the first two plagues were directly against the gods of the Nile, the next four were against the gods of the land, and the final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating with the death of the firstborn, which we'll talk about next week. We see then that as the plagues unfold, Egypt's so called gods, pardon the air quotes for those listening later, gods, Egypt's so called gods are powerless. To protect them. In fact, as you go through and read these accounts, you'll see that for the first few plagues, the, the magicians are even able to duplicate some of the things that Moses and Aaron do. And then they're like, nope, can't do that anymore. Egypt just runs out of the ability to answer for any of this. Their gods are powerless to protect them. Pharaoh is powerless to protect them. The Egyptians are left when we get to the end of chapter 10, only to wonder, where are our gods? Think about all that's happened to them. We'll talk about being in a tight spot. And the whole time, the sun is shining on Goshen, and the livestock's still alive over there, and there's still plants to eat, and God has mercifully protected his people. God is there. He puts his glory on display for all to see according to that paradigm given in chapter seven. And he does so by soundly defeating the false gods of Egypt. He swallows up their perceived power with his true sovereign power. And thus he makes his name known and he makes his will known. And that's the ultimate purpose of the plagues. I am God. Not me, sorry, I'm quoting God. (laughs) I will give my glory to no other. That's what he's saying. But is that the only purpose of the plagues? I'm glad you asked. Well, I asked, but maybe you were asking that. I mean, it's certainly the, we would call it the greatest and ultimate purpose of the plagues, but there's more. In fact, there's yet another purpose, And it brings to us that third and final really cleverly named point, the point. What I believe to be the pressing point for us when we consider the entirety of this passage, all of Exodus chapter 7 through 10. You see, one thing that the plagues do is they serve to continue to magnify the devastating consequences of sin upon the human heart. As we've already seen, Pharaoh's heart is continually hardened throughout these verses. In a way, spoken plainly in Scripture, yet perhaps difficult for us to comprehend, right? It can feel a little bit like watching a, a tennis match. You know, at times, you, you, we see that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, and then we see that Pharaoh hardens his heart, and it's like, boom, boom, boom. Okay, who's hardening who, and what's happening here, what's going on? It should remind us when we see this that God's sovereignty doesn't stop out there. It's not as if God is sovereign all around us, all out there, but not in here. No, God is sovereign even in here. God is sovereign inside of us. He's sovereign even over our hearts. Sure, God is never complicit in causing sin, but he's not required to stop us. From having what we by our very nature desire, even if it is sinful. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes that very point when he speaks about God giving unbelievers over. He gave them over and over. They continually display callousness to sin and rebellion toward him. He gives them over to their impurity and their evil desires. God gives them over. God is not bound to stop them. The same cycle is very present in Pharaoh's life, is it not? Is it not there in his life? Has he not seen some pretty frightening things? Does he not have reason to immediately say, okay, God's the real God, I'm in. There's every reason. God continually gives him over to his sin. God continues to harden his heart as he continues to harden it himself. He's got a hard heart. But something even more is happening. Something even more, something that the Apostle Paul also picks up on in Romans, particularly in chapter nine. In chapter nine, Paul quotes what God says to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 16. Turn with me to Romans nine. Paul is speaking clearly about God's sovereignty over human hearts. He's speaking about God's sovereignty and salvation. He's teaching about predestination, that God chooses some for eternal life. And Paul, an apostle, of course, spokesperson for Jesus, he anticipates objections as he does throughout his letter. He anticipates what we will object, and then he answers it. Praise God. Praise God, right? He, he knows. God knows. How we'll object, and then he answers. Look at verse 14, starting there. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? He says, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Strongest Greek he could use there. May By no means, may it never, ever possibly be And then Paul anticipates another objection, rightly so. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? And then some of the hardest verses, I believe in the New Testament. But who are you, O man or woman, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called out, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Man, this is hard truth. And some of you are like, Pastor why'd you get to that toward the end of your sermon? What's wrong with you? What's God's word? The best interpreters of the Old Testament are the New Testament authors, correct? Paul's teaching us what this whole account means and what God is teaching us in the account of Pharaoh. You don't have to have an advanced degree in theology, you don't even have to have a full understanding of this text to get the point. Here's the point God is sovereign over hearts, and not just Pharaoh's heart, he's sovereign over our hearts the account of the plagues against egypt reveals that there are two types of hearts those hearts that are softened by god's word and then there's those hearts that are hardened by god's word listen if you take about take moses and pharaoh which one's the sinner both right they're both sinners moses and pharaoh are both sinners but the great difference between them between any believer and any unbeliever is not the absence of sin. Do you hear me? The difference is not the absence of sin. It's the presence of God's grace, his regenerating grace, his convicting grace, his renewing grace that changes the heart of the believer. You see, in God's sovereign and free electing grace, God chose to have mercy upon Moses. Don't forget Moses' story, the murderer who ran away, the bum hanging out in Midian, and yet God came to him and met him and called him to do this. God chose to have mercy upon Moses. God chose to have mercy upon his people. He chose to have mercy upon us, upon you, upon me. It wasn't because of anything. Nothing you have done has earned God's mercy. Sorry, I get excited. Nothing. It depends not on you. It does not depend upon human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. It's because of his grace. Remember, Egyptians, like Pharaoh, lived under the delusion, like so many people do today, that they could rescue themselves by their own good works. They believed that the absence of misdeeds would lighten their hearts. How many times you hear, they have a good heart? And that they could weigh their hearts on some arbitrary scales of justice before a hall of gods and be found fit for eternal life. Well, you know, they tried their hardest. Yeah, it leans just a little bit, but it's okay. But where do they go now? Their gods have been destroyed. Their mock scales have been obliterated. And now they have to stand before the one true eternal king and judge of the universe. They have to stand before Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and took upon himself the sins of his people at Calvary. The one who didn't balance out the wrath of God, but instead exhausted the wrath of God towards his people. How? By taking that wrath himself. What will they do when they stand before the one who takes dead and sinful hearts of stone by his spirit and transforms them into new hearts of flesh that beat and pant for him? What answer are they gonna give him then? What answer will they have? Are they gonna be like Pharaoh and say, who are you? Who's Yahweh? Who's the Lord? What right do you have to tell me how I was supposed to live. <laughs> they may have feared Amamet in the corner who would have devoured their souls, but listen, the author of the book of Hebrews says it well. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, mercy, mercy, let it be known today that you cannot save yourself from God's wrath. I don't think any of you are Egyptians, but some of you may have bought into the lie that it's your good works that'll save you. Showing up to church, just doing enough, being a good person, whatever it might be is enough to save you. Lies. The only hope you have is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is your only hope. But you say, how do I know? How do I know? You just said God chooses some. How do I know I've been chosen? Do you have faith? Has God changed your heart? Is your heart softened this very day to say, I need that grace. Listen, if you've been a Christian like me for many years and you hear this and tears come to your eyes and you say, I need that still, praise God. He chose you before the foundation of the world that you may be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as sons and daughters. Do you hear? He loves you. The only way you can have a heart changed is if you belong to Christ. So hear me. Christ is your only hope. He's your only mercy. If you're here this morning, rejoice. If you're a Christian, rejoice. We're gonna take communion. We're gonna sing, rejoice. Rejoice. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, what's your hope? What's your hope? Why? Why, why anything else? What scale could possibly balance things out in the end? There's no curve, you're not gonna be graded on a curve. It's Christ or nothing. Christ is all. Amen and amen.